Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jim Capretta, who is a resident fellow and holds the Milton Friedman Chair at AEI, where he studies healthcare, entitlement, and U.S. budget policy. We'll be talking with Jim today about his excellent essay titled Rethinking Medicare from our Spring 2018 issue. In this piece, Jim discusses the immense fiscal problems of Medicare and also outlines some structural reforms that can make the program more sustainable for current and future beneficiaries. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So to start off, Jim, we feel like public debates about healthcare don't always describe what Medicare is, what it was designed to do, and what it actually is. So first, we're going to ask some really basic questions. Medicare has four parts. Could you talk a little bit about those four parts and how they're funded? Sure. The first part, what's known as Part A, is the what's called hospital insurance. This is the thing you pay for with your payroll taxes that come out of your paycheck every week or two or month, sort of combined with your Social Security payroll taxes under something called FICA. So a portion of those taxes, FICA, by the way, stands for Federal Insurance Contributions Act. Part of those contributions or taxes go toward the hospital insurance trust fund while you're working. And then when you retire or become disabled, hospital insurance pays for, obviously, facilities, inpatient care, and some other things like skilled nursing care in certain circumstances. Part B is something you sign up for when you become eligible for Medicare at age 65 or if you're disabled. And Part B is something you pay for with a premium. And it's voluntary, by the way. You don't have to do it. Almost everybody does, but you don't have to do it. And when you elect to do it, though, you have to pay a, a Part B premium that, in by and large, for most of these people, gets pulled out of their Social Security checks on a monthly basis. So they pay a premium for Part B. Now, it's important to realize that this Part B program, funded by a trust fund, 75% of its funding comes from the general fund of the Treasury. So the premiums from the beneficiaries pay for about a quarter of it, and the taxpayers pay for the other three-fourths, okay? So a lot of Medicare beneficiaries think, hey, I paid for my Medicare with my payroll taxes. Not really the case. The third element, I'll skip over one more, but I'll get to the third one, which is Part D for drugs, drug benefit. So for many years, Parts A and B did not cover drugs, so seniors had to pay out-of-pocket for drug coverage. In 2003, under President Bush, at a time that I was working for the Bush administration, pushed through Congress an addition to Medicare called the Prescription Drug Benefit, now called Part D. And that is like Part B. It's, it's modeled a little bit like Part D. You pay a premium if you want to get Part D coverage at the time of retirement, and the government subsidizes it basically 75% from the government and 25% from the beneficiaries. You mentioned four parts. There's a fourth part, but it's sort of wedged in the middle of them. It's called Part C created many years ago. And it's a way of getting those three parts we just discussed, hospitals, physicians, drugs, getting those three parts from a private plan called Medicare Advantage. So it comes under the title of the the Medicare law called Part C. And so you can take all of those other three parts in the form of a Medicare Advantage plan instead of having the government administer the benefit for you through what's called fee-for-service. Those are roughly the basics of Medicare. 
You also note that Medicare should be understood as having two distinct features beyond its four-part structure, that it's both a publicly run insurance plan for the elderly and disabled, as well as a social insurance program designed to subsidize health care for those individuals. Would you speak about those two main features and how they relate to your plan to reform the program? Sure. You could conceive of Medicare really differently from the way it's currently structured if you think that you know, what's going on here is instead of an income support program, what it's, what it's really doing is it's organizing the beneficiaries into a pool for purchasing health insurance. And so all of those millions of beneficiaries out there, I think they're like 60 million or so on Medicare now, those beneficiaries in effect form one insurance pool. And the money that's going into Medicare through the taxes and the premium payments from the beneficiaries in effect become ways of making premium payments for their coverage a la a private insurance plan that you'd get through an employer or something else. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to think of the pool. You know, they're pooled together, they all pay the same premium, and they get it when they turn 65 or become disabled. The other part, as you mentioned, is that it's like a social insurance program like Social Security. That is, they're trying to make it easier for people to finance that premium when they get to retirement or become disabled by making them pay payroll taxes when they're working and by heavily subsidizing it from the government when they become eligible. Those are transfer payments. Those involve spending and taxation by the government. And that's a separate function from simply pulling them all together into a pool and saying, hey, we're going to help you get health insurance. You could have done them kind of in a very different way than the way they designed it, but it is what it is by a lot of historical, you know, a lot of historical reasons went into to the reasons why it was designed the way it is. We also wanted to ask, why now? Why is now the time to fundamentally reform Medicare? Well, it should have been done 25 years ago, <laughs> so now is better than later. But the reason really is because of the changing nature of medical care and the changing demographics of the country. Right. So Medicare was really created at a time when there was really kind of one way of thinking about how you get health insurance. It was sort of the Blue Cross Blue Shield model of the 1950s and 60s. Basically, anybody that had health insurance had a not-for-profit Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance plan funded by their employer. By the way, it was often, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield was modeled on the, you know, part for doctors, part for hospitals kind of model. So they did the same thing in Medicare. And that's not really the case anymore. We've got a lot more dynamism in terms of how insurance is structured. There's different ways of managing care. So the, the program has changed quite a bit from when it was created. But the statute still is built around this 1965 fee-for-service model. The second reason is demographic. As I said, we're in the middle of this massive transformation of American society and global advanced economies. It's not just in America where we're aging quite rapidly. And it's a function of two things. We're just, you know, smaller family sizes beginning in the 1970s has left the workforce growing at a less rapid rate than it had previously. We also are, thank goodness, living longer through a lot of medical advances and improved public health. And so the amount of years we're spending in retirement and therefore on Medicare are much greater than they were when the program was enacted. So the financial burdens have increased immensely. The tax base is not quite as robust as they were hoping it was 30 and 40 years ago. And the beneficiary population is much more, much larger than they were anticipating 30 and 40 years ago. So you got a lot of financial pressures from demographics. And then the program itself is just a little bit antiquated in terms of its design, because as I mentioned, it was really, you know, written for a 1965 kind of insurance system. So there's those two reasons generally, you'd, you'd want to update the program and modernize it. Yeah, Jim, you're talking about those demographic changes. I'm going to read a quote from your piece that I think <laughs> illustrates that really well. Quote, 
The combination of falling birth rates and rising life expectancy has dramatically reduced the ratio of the working age population to Medicare beneficiaries. In 1970, there were 5.5 workers for every Medicare beneficiary. Today, there are just 3.5 workers for every person on Medicare. And by 2050, the ratio will fall into just 2.4. So that kind of, again, illustrates what you're, what you're talking about. Well, there. thank you for reading that. I <laughs> summarized what I was trying to say much more succinctly. I should have went back and quoted myself. No, that was, that's exactly right. That is essentially the problem, the conundrum we're in. And it's not just Medicare, obviously. There's an element of this in Social Security and throughout our federal budget. But it's very, very acute in Medicare because the demographics in combination with expenditures from on, on medical care also going up rapidly really kind of supercharged the problem in the Medicare program. We could also talk a bit about Medicare Parts B and D, which, as you know, cover physician and other outpatient services and prescription drugs, and the specific significant fiscal problems that are associated with, with those parts. They were initially designed to be financed in equal parts by beneficiary premiums and the federal treasury, but federal taxpayers now pay for three quarters of the program costs. So how did taxpayers become responsible for picking up the tab for Parts B and D? Originally, as you noted, it was 50-50, and it was a compromise at that time. Basically, what was going on there was that they wanted to model Medicare on Social Security with a payroll tax that financed it. And by the way, just let me give you one sidebar on that. That's very important politically, mm -hmm. okay? Because if you think about Social Security, I think the one most clear laws of politics in American life is that you can't mess with Social Security easily without getting yourself into a lot of political trouble. It right. doesn't matter which party you're from. So President Roosevelt's initial insight was right on target and has proved absolutely true from the very beginning, which was if a program is financed, especially a program that affects the broad middle class, is financed directly out of their payroll withdrawals and it goes into a trust fund, that link politically makes it almost untouchable because the workers say, hey, wait a second, I've paid for that. They know it's coming out of their paycheck and they've earned their Social Security benefit. Okay. I think that political dynamic is really, really important. And they wanted it to extend by 1965. They saw how well it was working in Social Security, and they wanted it to extend it to Medicare as well. So that's why they did the Part A side, financed from a payroll tax. They didn't have the ability, however, because of the immense expense, to put it all into the payroll tax. And plus, they wanted to subsidize this a little bit so that the current seniors could get some money for this without overburdening the HI trust fund. So they started to draw money directly out of the treasury to pay for half of the doctor benefit. What happened, though, was that the, that benefit grew like 20% a year in the initial years. And it was running wild in terms of expense. And quickly, it became very clear that if they let this go on, they were going to have a huge unfinanced burden on the, on the budget. They're going to have a, a massive premium that would go on the Medicare beneficiaries that they couldn't afford. If they were having to pay for half of it themselves, it was going to become quickly overly burdensome on senior citizens. So they started to ratchet up how much it was coming from the Treasury, and that lowered the burden on the beneficiaries. And by the late 70s, it was basically 75-25. Then when they got to the point of creating Part D in 2003, they decided to just model it off of Part B and do that same split. Jim, you also in your piece quote from the 2017 Medicare Trustees Report that Taxpayers will provide $4.4 in subsidies for Parts B and D from 2017 to 2026, 
I mean, that's huge. And you also note that it's largely hidden from view and not really talked about publicly. Could you talk about why that is the case? I mean, that's a huge amount of money. It's a huge amount of money. And it is not talked about publicly. It, It shows up because, you know, you have this sort of idea of the trust funds. And so you get this trustees report every year from the Medicare actuaries. And it projects, and of course, in Part A, it it more or less is kind of a trust fund. There's another long history about why we could talk about that. We don't need to get into it today. But they they do have a trust fund where it's just basically payroll taxes coming in and then the spending on hospitalization coverage going out. And so when the two get mismatched, there's a trust fund problem. They alert the Congress about it. And, you know, people worry about that. Part B and Part D are different because by definition, they're always solvent, no matter how much the expense the Treasury kicks in to cover 75% of it. It's automatic and no appropriation is needed. Congress doesn't need to do anything. So it's basically invisible and just occurs. But it is one of the main reasons that $4.4 trillion is one of the main reasons why we're running massive federal deficits today. Let's start to talk about reforming Medicare to address these immense and looming fiscal challenges. We argue that these efforts have to start by acknowledging the point at the beginning of your essay that Medicare is both a health insurance plan for the retired and disabled, as well as a tax and transfer program that subsidizes health care and retirement. So you write that a redesigned Medicare should de-emphasize its tax and spending features, especially for wealthy Americans who can afford to pay more for health care on their own, and it should retain and promote its value as a source of guaranteed affordable health insurance for the retired and disabled. So why don't you expand upon this vision for Medicare reform? Sure. Thanks. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, I think the way to think about it is that, like I said earlier to one of your questions, you do have this pooling process of everybody who turns 65 and the disabled, they get thrown together and they're going to get insurance in the same system. And because of that, you can make it very valuable to them by saying, hey, we're purchasing as a, as a group. So we have a lot of leverage, the government helping, of course. And secondly, we're not going to take any health into consideration. No, your health status doesn't factor into this. We're just going to charge an average premium for everybody based on the average cost for all the entire 60 million pool. So that means if someone comes into Medicare and they've had a history of cancer, they don't have to worry about it. This is a very valuable thing. They just say, look, I'm going into Medicare. I'm going to pay the same premium as everybody else. So that's really important. And it is very likely that because we all have problems when we get older, we all are going to die from something that it's very unlikely that a good, robust commercial pool would develop on its own because of the risks associated with insuring this population. So there's a reason why Medicare exists in this and provides this function. Now, having said all that, that doesn't mean you have to subsidize everybody to the same degree when they get to that point. Think of it this way. When we're working and getting health insurance through our employer, for many of us, it appears like our employer is paying for our health care. But really, that's coming out of your compensation package. So you're paying for it yourself. So if you're someone who's making $100,000 a year and you have a health insurance plan that costs $15,000 for you and your family, the employer probably pays you $85,000, okay? And they say, well, I'm going to give you fifteen dollars in health care and $85,000 in a salary. Right. But your compensation is $100,000. So in a sense, you pay for the whole thing. Most people have that kind of an arrangement their entire working life. So they are, in a sense, paying for their health insurance their entire working life. Then they get to 65 and suddenly the government is going to pay for 75% of their doctor coverage and 75% of their drug benefit, regardless of how much money they made during their working lives. And by the way, we also are asking those folks to set aside money for retirement through 401ks and other employer plans that are encouraged and subsidized by tax breaks. And so 
you know, you could start to say to yourself, why don't we just make Medicare a little bit less generous for people that probably made enough in their working lives to retire comfortably, pay for their own health insurance, and lessen the burden on taxpayers, which who, by the way, oftentimes are much lower income. So I think the way to think about all of that is it has to be prospective. You know, you can't abruptly change people's plans. But if, if you start to say to the working age population, hey, when you get to Medicare, we're rejiggering the deal between the government and the beneficiary in terms of who pays for what when you get to Medicare. And if you've had a good income, I'm not even talking about wealthy. I'm just saying upper income, you know, somebody above the median, perhaps, or above two thirds of the median or two thirds up the uh, income scale. Those are folks that could reasonably be expected to save enough for retirement to pay a Medicare premium of roughly $12,000 a year. And so I think that's where we need to go. Because a lot of people would say that anytime you try to touch or reform Medicare, that's taking benefits away from seniors. But it sounds like you're saying there's a fundamental kind of unfairness at the heart of the financing structure the way it is now, in the sense that everybody is subsidizing people who could pay more for their healthcare, wealthier or even upper middle class seniors. Absolutely. That is part of it. Now, we have put our toe in the water by income testing both the Part B and Part D premiums for people that have very high incomes in their retirement years. But honestly, the, the current system is inadequate in getting at this because income at retirement is not really the best way to measure how well someone is at retirement because they only draw income maybe as needed. Maybe they put a lot of money into their non-liquid assets, especially real estate, and it's not measured as an income. So what you ought to do is, what I recommend in the paper is look at lifetime earnings. So you say, okay, by the way, we collect that as part of the payroll tax system. And you just say, okay, how much did you make from earned income throughout your working life from age 20 to 65? And if you're on the high end of that calculation, you have, you'll have an expectation that you're going to pay more for the premium that's owed for the total Medicare package in retirement. Doesn't measure your current income. It says, how much did you make in your lifetime? And if you're in the you know, top third of that, for instance, or top half, if I'm lucky and I'm pushing things, then we might ask you to pay a little bit more. Okay. But right now, this way, the way they're measuring it is just income in retirement, and they're only capturing about 5 to 10% of the Medicare population to pay this income-tested premium. And if you think about it, just look around and use common sense. There are only 5 to 10% of all retirees, have only 5 to 10% of them made enough money during their lives to pay, pay a little bit more in B&D. I think common sense would indicate that there's more than that in the sort of upper middle class than 5 to 10% of the population. And we need to expand that group. Mm -hmm. And you refer to that as a community-rated premium, right? Yeah. The community-rated premium is the sort of the total premium that would be owed absent any subsidization for a Medicare person. So right now, it's about $12,000, $13,000 per beneficiary. So that basically says, just take all the spending in Medicare, divide it by all the beneficiaries. How much is it on a per-person basis? That's the total community-rated premium. You know, take what my recommendations to their logical extreme, people that made a lot of money, they ought to be paying that whole twelve dollars or $13,000 premium themselves. And if you don't make that much money, then maybe you do get subsidized by the government. Yeah. So Jim, let's talk a bit about kind of the reforms you outlined in your piece, how the financing would work. So at first you say a smaller universal entitlement, which would be about 20% of the value of today's benefit. Also on top of that, for low-income seniors, an additional financial support for that. And then we can talk about premium support maybe later after that. But talk about the, how the financing would change in your reform plan. 
basically what you do is try to make the, the payroll tax that's currently being collected, make it provide a uniform fixed payment toward your retirement health insurance benefit under Medicare. So even people that are well-to-do would get some little bit of a payment because they had paid in payroll taxes that says, here's this is going to go toward your total community-rated premium. And it'd be the same for everybody. And then above that, you'd be, again, looking at this lifetime earnings calculation to see how much money you made during your lifetime. And if you made on the small, lower end of that, you get a big subsidy above the 20%. If you made a lot of money, you'd get a very small amount. Okay. And you might be paying for most of the premium yourself. And it would be a graduated schedule, pretty clear and transparent. And you know it at age 65 what your annual premium is going to be so that it would be something you could plan for. It's a way, I think, of more fairly distributing the premium. And it doesn't require blowing up Medicare. You know, the basic structure would still kind of be there. You still have a payroll tax. You still have this sort of combined benefit at age 65. But you just rejigger the tax and spending side of this so that it was more fair across generations. You also talked about combining the different parts of Medicare into a unified insurance product. Would you go into some more detail about that? Well, this gets back to my point earlier, which is they, they kind of designed Medicare in 1965 based on the predominant insurance mechanisms at that time, Blue Cross Blue Shield of that era. And you had sort of this hospital insurance system with doctors, and then we've added a drug benefit. They all now have separate cost-sharing requirements, separate co-insurance. They don't even have within the traditional program a limit on your out-of-pocket spending if you're a Medicare beneficiary. So a couple of things here. One is we, want, we don't want to put people in the hospital anymore. So designing a benefit that is so part of it that is so centric to the hospital side, that doesn't make sense anymore anyway. And so what you should do is say, look, regardless of where you get your care, you're going to have a $500 deductible, mm -hmm. something like that. And then we'll start covering your benefits with you paying 20%, we'll pay 80%. And then up to five or six or $7,000, I don't know where the line is anymore. Above that, we'll pay for everything, okay? And you are relieved of your responsibilities. So you have some catastrophic protection. So I think that kind of design with some wrinkles is much better than the current design, which says, Every time you go to a hospital, yeah. you have your deductible again, okay, which really doesn't make any sense. And you have a limit on the number of days you can be in a hospital. It really is irrational. Why does a hospital thing in general not make sense as a whole? Well, I'd say that you've built a Medicare system that where lots of the funding, financing, and benefit design is steered toward admitting people into an inpatient setting and including the subsidization that's there for training graduate medical students. And so you want to do is start pulling that money out of that system and making it more flexible mm -hmm. and distributed in other ways so that our system evolves toward, we're always going to need hospital inpatient settings. You know, people are going to need to go to a hospital from time to time. But the number of instances when that's going to be necessary have been declining rapidly and will continue to decline over the next, you know, quarter century. Right. So you don't need the bright line anymore. No need a bright line anymore. And so you should make it much more flexible. And so another proposal you mentioned, Jim, is premium support or something like it, which has been tried or proposed before, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. But essentially combining the base payment you mentioned also with means-tested help, especially for lower-income seniors and disabled persons. How would that work and how would that work to lower costs and premiums? Well, so far in our, in our discussion, we've talked really about this design aspect of Medicare as a structural question, you know, how to think about 
the insurance benefit versus the tax and transfer side of it, all of which are crucially important. There's huge money involved with all of that. But the other element for bringing discipline to it is how do you make the per person cost, regardless of how it's paid for, how do you moderate its growth rate and bring more efficiency to the delivery of services to the patients? Because there is a lot of, of waste and inefficiency throughout medical care, not just in Medicare, by the way. And Medi but Medicare is a big part of why that is. And so premium support is really an idea about bringing competition to the delivery of services to Medicare patients. And the way it works is you would get your Medicare benefit through this pooled mechanism we described. But as an individual, you get to select from competing options. So maybe there'd be 10 options available in your local community. And Medicare would say, well, based on your lifetime income and the base subsidy that everybody gets, here's how much we're going to give you toward your coverage. Maybe it's $5,000. Then you, the beneficiary, have to decide, okay, with that $5,000, which of these 10 plans do I want to enroll in? And by the way, that $5,000 doesn't go up when you pick a more expensive plan. So because of that, there's pressure on the plans to say, hey, we don't want to charge you any more than is necessary because we know... If we go way above the amounts that other people are charging, you're likely to migrate to the cheaper options because the money's coming out of your pocket, not the government's pocket. So this idea of premium support is really to, in a structured way, where the rules are clear, the government's watching over this, there's a lot of oversight, you have to cover the benefits, you can't deny people medical care, but the efficiency by which they deliver that care is subjected to competition. And I think that's the additional way some discipline can be brought to the system that doesn't exist today. And also, Jim, I feel like critics on the left who've opposed premium support before would say, when you do this, you're taking away a guaranteed benefit, you're taking away money from seniors, and then inevitably they will have health care that's not as good of a quality. There will be kind of a race to the bottom by insurance companies to, to just have a cheaper plan but not good quality. What's kind of the response to that from your point of view? Well, the truth is that, again, we're going back to this notion that Medicare was designed so long ago. It turns out that unmanaged fee-for-service Medicare is not very high quality. The idea that you as a beneficiary are going to go in and navigate this very complex system on your own and figure out where and when to get care, manage all your prescriptions, have make sure you know, you're know you talking to one specialist and then another and then another. You've got it all in your head, trying to keep track of it all, and they don't communicate with each other. That kind of fragmented fee-for-service way of dealing with seniors' health care has been shown in study after study after study after study to be of lower quality than something where someone is given a fixed amount and said, please coordinate care for these people so that they get it in an organized way, that the prescriptions aren't you know, contraindicated, that the specialists talk to each other. That everybody, you know, somebody recommending a knee replacement knows that you also have heart trouble, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the idea, this criticism of premium support as being low quality, the folks who make that argument would need to defend the quality that's provided through fee-for-service Medicare, which is shown to be wanting in a lot of ways. And you also argue in favor of creating incentives for workers to save enough money to finance their own health insurance premiums in retirement. And to get there, you mentioned lifting restrictions and contribution limits on health spending accounts or HSAs, as well as on other savings vehicles, such as 401ks and IRAs. Well, I think this gets to the point of, you know, if you go down the road of what I recommended, looking at someone's lifetime earnings, you know, maybe the first thing some workers might say is, well, gee, you know, 
how am I going to set aside all that money to pay for my Medicare? And I, so I think the government would have to be responsive to that criticism and say, look, we're going to make it easy for you to set aside even a little bit more money for your Medicare coverage when you get to retirement. You could do it through an HSA. You could do it through your 401k. And in doing so, you probably have to relax some of the contribution limits in those options to let people set aside even more tax-preferred money. So there's some upfront costs to the Treasury with that, but I think it'd be well worth it. And you also talked about providing additional financial support for low-income seniors beyond the universal entitlement benefit you mentioned. So that could also be tied to lifetime earnings. Yeah. I mean, that, that gets back to our point that we're not just saying we want to make upper-income people pay more. We also want to make sure that someone who, you know, when they get to 65, their options at that point for a high income probably are quite limited. And so their income is what it is. And as a social safety net society, which I totally support and agree with and believe in, we ought to make sure that those folks are, are able to get into Medicare easily, have access to the health care they need at that point. And, you know, there's no, the obligations should be lessened on them, not, not increased. Okay. And so we're talking about a reform here where we would generally ease off of those taxpayer subsidies, shift to having middle class and upper middle class seniors paying more and also making it self-financing. So all financed by the payroll tax. So how long does that take? What's kind of like, take us through the timeline of how we get to that, that Medicare reform. Well, unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't yet been able to get all of these things modeled all the way out. So <laughs> this is quite a complex financial proposal. Sure. And so it would take, you know, a little bit of extra work to get through precise dates and numbers about how this would play out. But I think this would take at least a generation to kind of way, get all the way through. You know, you're talking about a transition and structure of the program that probably take 30 years. By the way, that's not unprecedented, right? So just think of this, that in 1983, Congress passed a compromise Social Security rescue package, a reform that both parties supported, and President Reagan endorsed it, as well as then House Speaker Tip O'Neill and many others, Senator Pat Moynihan and so on, Senator Dole, they all worked on it. In that reform, they raised the retirement age in, in Social Security from 65 to 67, but we're still in the middle of that transition. How about that? Yeah. And most of us don't even know what's going on, right? So, you know, we're a generation past the enactment of that, and it's still underway. Happens a couple months every year. I think it's fully transitioned by 2027, if I remember right, something like that. And so these things are possible. You know, it takes a little while. You, put, you build in a long transition schedule, ease it in step by step. And, you know, one interesting thing about that Social Security plan is that you don't have people marching in the streets every, every year saying, stop the increase in the retirement age, <laughs> even though it's happening right now. They just don't know it's happening because right. it was agreed to on a bipartisan basis. It's being phased in slowly. Somehow the sun still comes up. The same thing could happen in Medicare. Yeah. So maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, we could sort of sum up the different features of your plan that you presented, six different ones combining the different parts of Medicare into a unified product and providing community-rated premiums, smaller universal entitlement funded by a Medicare payroll tax, additional financial support for low-income seniors, providing premium support, which would combine the base entitlement and means-tested help you mentioned into a defined contribution payment, and finally, creating incentives for workers to save enough money to finance their own health insurance premiums in retirement. Anything else to add to that? <laughs> Just a small it's, proposal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let me add one more thing sure. to kind of address some criticisms of this that I'm sure that are sure to come, have already come, <laughs> keep coming, which gets back to this premium support thing, which has always been controversial. One thing I think is important to realize is that this is not intended to be something that 
is only limited to for-profit national shareholder-owned insurance companies bidding on Medicare business through premium support. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the conception that the opponents of it have. They say, well, this will be, you know, you name your villain insurance company, and we don't like them. And, you know, a lot of the money goes to shareholders and CEO salaries, and it's go down the list of what Senator Sanders says about healthcare in the United States, right? Sure. So that kind of argumentation. But in premium support, you could have not-for-profit plans competing. In fact, there would be. There are already lots of not-for-profit Medicare Advantage plans in Medicare today. You could also have what are known as today called accountable care organizations, ACOs. These are essentially managed care plans run by doctors and hospitals, not by insurance companies. Mm. Give you shorthand. It's more complicated than that, but that's basically what's going on. They could compete in premium support. And so if you didn't, if you were a beneficiary and you didn't want to go to a, go to a big national insurance company for your health coverage, you could stay with the government-run system if you wanted, number one. And number two, there's probably going to be an option that is like your local hospital system running the plan with the local doctors. And they have their own model that is more localized and not a national plan. And maybe it's not for profit. And you might be more comfortable with that. So I think we should have more understanding that this is intended to open up possibilities for managing the care the best way possible for the beneficiaries. And if that means you know, a national plan with access to capital markets and the ability to invest in things, maybe they can run it better, but maybe not. Maybe it's a local plan that knows the community better and is more grounded in it and is there for the long haul. You know, some of these national plans, I have my own criticisms about them, right? I mean, they can pick up and leave at any time they want, right? And of course, leave people high and dry. So there's a sense, there's a reason why people do like not-for-profit long-term investments in healthcare because, you know, their community kind of depends on it. If you introduce more competition into Medicare and those locally managed plans are better than the national ones, and that should rise to the top and those should be the preferred plan or people would figure out that's the best plan. Absolutely. Okay. Let's kind of end this uh, by talking about some of the politics of Medicare reform. So um, you had a very detailed proposal here. We, We thought it was very interesting, but kind of what's dominating the conversation right now is Medicare for all, especially Senator Sanders, you mentioned Senator Warren. Why is that the case, you think? Is it the simplicity of it? It's an easy thing to kind of use as a slogan. Why do you think that is? I think part of it is driven by the Democratic primary itself, is that the Democratic Party many, many years ago made it a goal for itself to create and put in place a nationalized system of health insurance. And so like clockwork, every time there's a presidential election, the candidates, the base of the party remains very much committed to that, a la a European system of some sort or Canada. And regardless of what's going on in our health system, they sort of, when they say, well, we're going to elect the president, what's our priority? We want to do this thing once and for all, right? They really do want a single-payer nationalized system of health insurance. It's a core commitment of the Democratic Party. And so I think Sanders, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren and the others are responding to that element of the Democratic primary that isn't going to go away. Even if they, if they don't win in 2020, I guarantee there'll be someone in 2024 calling for the same thing. It's just, it's part of what they're doing, okay? It's their mission. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to get it enacted, but they believe like to be true to their constituency, to, to the party and its history and culture and its aspirations, they got to call for it. Okay. I think that's part of what's going on. The second thing that's going on is why is it resonating more and more? I think there are two factors there. One is that there are higher deductibles now. So there's a lot of Americans who have, you know, they used to have $1,500 deductibles and suddenly they find themselves with a $6,000 deductible, often through an employer. So they're kind of going into the system saying, I have a lot of these expenses now. 
and I'm paying a lot out of pocket and the market doesn't really work that great. And so they're complaining about that and agitating and upset about it. And I think that's one reason why healthcare, despite the strong economy, has still moved up to the top of the list as a pocketbook issue. Let me add one other thing here, which is that a strange aspect of this is that, and this is kind of important for the weeds, but for the conversation about Medicare for all, is that, remember, 10 years ago, literally 10 years ago, right now, we were in the midst of a raucous national debate over universal coverage, right? President Obama was selling the Affordable Care Act to the Congress as something that would be a major step, if not the final step, toward universal coverage for the United States. And here we are 10 years later, having gotten that enacted, the Democratic Party is acting almost like that whole 10-year debate, which really was difficult on the party, never occurred, (laughs) right? Or that maybe President Obama wasn't successful or something. And so they, they stand up in the debates and say, what we need in this country is universal coverage. And I always think to myself, I thought we supposedly just did that. That wasn't that long ago. I was around, you know? And maybe you guys are young, but maybe you were around. I think we remember that, actually. Yeah. And most Americans probably do remember it. So it's a little bit of, there's some cognitive dissonance going on here. And I think one thing that's happening is that if you look at the Affordable Care Act and what's going on, they keep saying, well, there's 32 million people that are still uncovered. That's the talking point. That's almost the first one that comes out in these debates. We still have 32 million people uncovered. Well... Two-thirds of them are eligible for coverage under the Affordable Care Act. They just haven't taken it yet. Okay, a lot of them are already eligible for Medicaid. A lot of them are eligible for subsidized coverage in the ACA exchanges. Many of them are eligible for employer coverage. Or they have incomes above four times the poverty line and might be expected to pay for it themselves. And that basically is the lion's share of the 32 million. The one group in that, there's two other groups in the 32 million that are worth noting. One is the group who are in states that didn't expand Medicaid and are too poor to qualify for the subsidies in the exchanges. So they're a very sympathetic group of people, all right? They're about almost 3 million people in that group. That coverage gap is real and harmful and should be done. Something should be done about making sure those people have a reasonable gateway into insurance coverage because they don't have it today. The second group is more controversial, which is those people who are in the country without proper documentation and are ineligible for subsidies under the Affordable Care Act, not because Republicans made them exclude him, but because the Democrats wrote it into their law saying we don't want you know, we didn't want taxpayer subsidies going toward people without proper documentation. Which brings you to the question, what are they going to do? Are they going, and there's five or six million people in that category. So I think this idea that Medicare for all, I think there's going to be a little bit of reality check on it before it's all said and done. And unsurprisingly, President Trump has criticized Medicare for all. <laughs> yeah. And, and he recently signed an executive order that promotes access to private insurance plans through Medicare Advantage. But apparently there hasn't been much enthusiasm in Congress to actually push a more thorough redesign of Medicare through. Do you see that changing anytime soon before or after the election? No, okay. I don't. No, I really don't. No. I think, you know, we're, we're in a, the era of President Trump. You know, he really wants to steer away from anything controversial in the entitlement area. And he, you know, not totally, but by and large has been doing that so far and just taking things that are popular, trying to hold drug prices down and so on. And I would expect more of the same. The Republicans in Congress aren't interested in taking it up either. We're in an era where the fiscal problems of the country seem to be put on a, you know, really way, way down the list of concerns for the elected leaders. 
And the only thing that's going to change that, I think, will be when they realize that it's causing major economic problems. And so when that, when and if, if and when that occurs, I think it will eventually, that's when they'll have to say, oh, gosh, we got to get serious again. If there's a, a new presidential administration that really cares and takes about it, takes it as a concern, that could change. But then the voters might be concerned about that. Or you're saying one, two decades down the line, when we actually do have fiscal problems, that's when we're like, oh, we, yeah. need, to, we need to do something. Well, nothing's going to happen in 2020, right? So yeah. you're going to have, you know, unless barring some, you know, never say never, right? Yeah. But I mean, barring some really dramatic events, which are possible, <laughs> but barring that, you're going to have President Trump against a, a Democratic candidate who is very unlikely to offer anything that would look like a retrenchment of the Medicare program or any part of the entitlement structure of the United States. And so I don't see it in the cards for 2021 and to 2024 with anything major happening. That could change with the 2024 campaign and beyond, or if an economic calamity kind of hits, you know, what happens then? What do you do in response? If the dynamics of the politics change from some outside event, yeah, then something could change. But I, absent that, I think we're in for the status quo here for a while. So we're just going to conclude with a feature on the podcast, which is called Over Under, where we throw out some topics and you tell us whether you think this is an overrated or underrated topic or idea. So the first one will be the idea of healthcare as a right. <laughs> oh, that's a hard one because <laughs> uh, can I answer that? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, absolutely. And yeah, please explain yeah, it. Yeah. I think it's overrated because <laughs> I think people think it when they say, like when Senator Sanders says healthcare is a right, mm-hmm. I think he thinks that means it implies, you know, a direct connection to some kind of nationalized system of care. And I don't think that's the case. I think people do have a right to healthcare. And the way what I mean by that is, It's a moral claim that people have a right to be born into a society where political leaders, elected officials have made reasonable accommodation for them to access medical care that would be beneficial to them. That's about all I, that's all it means. That doesn't mean that they have a constitutional right. That doesn't mean they get to sue the government. It means they have kind of a moral claim. If they were born into society that had the resources, but said, you know, we don't really care if you get health care or not even though you're in a situation where you can't get it yourself for any number, you're a child or something, and we don't care if you can get access to beneficial medical care, you're on your own. If the reaction of elected leaders to that question was that, then I think that would be a moral failing on the part of the political leaders at that time. And so that's what I mean by people have a right to health care. But recall in that, that means very different things in different societies, right? If you're in a poor society, the ability of elected leaders to do things for you and, and make sure the system is oriented so you can get access is going to be there, but maybe more, you know, less robust than it would be in a very wealthy society. So it's all relative. The definition of reasonable can, can shift. shift, of course. So that's why I think it's overrated. I think it's underrated because these, these Republicans sort of feel like they should say, no, no, there isn't a right to health care, right? Because it's not in the Constitution. And by the way, you know, uh, if we go down that road of saying everything's a right, you know, where does it end, right? I have a right to a comfortable bed and et cetera, et cetera, you know? And so they worry about these things. I think that's kind of, kind of hogwash. People have a right to education. That's one of the basics. And they have a right to reasonable access to medical care. By the way, the United States has a law in the book saying that if you present yourself at an emergency room, they have an obligation to take care of you regardless of your means, insurance, or anything else. So in a sense, the United States has enacted, not just with that, but with many provisions that then wrap around our system, has enacted an imperfect right to health care. 
was a very nuanced take, Jenna. That was very interesting. Next one, physician burnout or the doctor shortage, however you want to characterize it, is the most pressing problem in American healthcare. Is that overrated or underrated? Overrated. I mean, I think there is an element of truth to that, but these are supply and demand things, really. You know, that the compensation to become a physician has to match the headache and hassle factors and everything else. And if you're a hospital system or a physician group and, you know, people pull out because they're burned out, other people will come in because they can make a good living. So I think it's, these things will take a while. The training takes a long time. But over the course of 15, 20, 25 years, things tend to even out. And then uh, finally, Jim, electronic health records, which has been sort of fully implemented, I think, recently. Is that overrated or underrated? It's underrated in the sense that the potential for this to be you know, very beneficial to everybody involved is still there, but you got to get it right. And it's so complicated and such a mess, really. But the big missing ingredient, where they just sort of started off on the wrong foot and have been trying to catch up ever since. And what do I mean by that? If they never, it really should have been so that the consumer owned the information. Think of like when you go to a bank and you do something with your institution and you have an expectation that that's recorded electronically somewhere that you can have access to to double check what went on. The same basic thing should have been done with the medical system, which is to say there should have been an obligation on the part of the provider community to provide in a standardized electronic form information about the transaction that occurred with the patient so that they could go back later through some safe portal and look at what happened and see, okay, yeah, my son or daughter got this immunization. You know, we had to visit the emergency room for that reason, you know, broken arm or, you know, whatever. Okay. Your whole medical history would be recorded in one place. And that's a different mentality and way of doing it than they did. What they did was they said, let's make it easy and electronic for physicians to talk to each other who are not in the same group which is okay, but it, it meant that they were sort of force-feeding them to sort of do something they were not, not inclined to do, make them do it, pay them to do it. And by the way, the structure of the data was set up so that it wasn't really consumer-friendly. And so you ended up doing it kind of on a billing system based on the codes that are used to charge insurance companies, which is the wrong basis to do this as well. So the whole thing kind of got off on the wrong foot, and they're making it better with each iteration. But it still is not what I described at the beginning. It's They're fundamentally trying, different. Fundamentally different, yeah. And it could get there, but it's going to take, still take a little while. Well, thanks so much, Jim. That was a great conversation. Touched on all kinds of, not just Medicare, but all kinds of healthcare. Really appreciate it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks very much. You're welcome. So if you'd like to read Jim's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more of our episodes of our podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.